Are stablecoins a threat to financial stability? Stablecoins have seen staggering growth in the last year, with the Bank for International Settlements estimating that as of late 2021, there were $120 billion of them in circulation. Therefore, it's no surprise that regulators are taking an intense interest in these new instruments, which could revolutionise finance or could in future pose a major financial systemic threat. Hi, I'm Justin Pugsley, editor of Global Risk Regulator. We have run many stories about crypto regulation. If you'd like to learn more about the publication, either contact my colleague Ella Jacob at ella.jacob at ft.com or visit www.globalriskregulator.com. To discuss the role of stablecoins, how they should be regulated and whether they really do pose a threat to financial stability, I'm delighted to welcome Dante Disparte, who is Chief Strategic Officer and Head of Global Policy at Circle, the issuer of the USDC dollar stablecoin. Before we address issues such as financial stability, let's start with the basics. So Dante, what are stablecoins? How do they work? And how do issuers gain revenue from managing, managing them? Is it through monetizing user data, earning interest on the coin's underlying assets, or is it providing complementary services? I mean, what's the business model here? Yeah, thank you, Justin. It's it's great to be on uh, the conversation with you uh, today. So a stablecoin is really not dissimilar to other electronic money innovations at the core, right? So in the same way that an e-money issuer has a number of revenue models. Uh, one, of course, is a conservative rate of return on the reserves or in the e-money terms, the omnibus account being used to manage payments on behalf of customers. Typically, that generates a conservative rate of return. In the case of a stablecoin, um, that rate is the difference between cash, for example, uh, treasury treasuries or bonds issued by a government and other highly high-quality liquid assets. Um, and then the, the the delta of the liabilities of stablecoins outstanding. That's one revenue model. The others relate to de minimis transaction fees, any kinds of services, any times of any types of custody services that might also be provided. So it's a pretty straightforward business model at the core. Right. Right. Okay. But it looks like there are different ways of doing it as well. Okay. So. Um, Dante, I mean, what do stablecoins bring to the table that can't already be done through current payment systems such as bank wire transfer, debit cards, and, and all the other systems or payment systems that we have out there? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. So I was on a panel not long ago with uh, some colleagues from the Bank for International Settlements. And so I, I borrowed this metaphor from them that if you came to today's regulators with an innovation called cash or in the crypto parlance, fiat money, yeah. and, and propose that innovation, it's likely that the innovation would not be authorized because one, the opacity of cash, two, the limited transmissibility or extensibility of cash functionally would only go as far as your arm could reach. And then third, in the context of a public health emergency, it's a potential vector for spreading a disease. And so now envision a world in which cash can be uploaded into the internet in the same way that when you and I might have turned our CD collections into MP3s, we suddenly had a programmable form of money, but where the underlying asset is still yours, it's held in the care, custody, and control of the banking system. So now you have 
functionally dollars or pounds sterlings equipped with the powers of the internet. So the ability to transmit peer to peer, the ability to execute micropayments, the ability to operate this concept of programmable money, and so many other functions are enabled by digital currencies and, and stable coins. And so that's the breakthrough. The other piece that's really important, because it's not about what can they do that existing payment systems cannot, what we're actually seeing is that many very large traditional payments companies and banks are actually enabling stable stablecoin settlement as a part of the way they would operate in the movement of money in the 21st century. So it's not about competition, it's actually about completing unfinished work in the financial system. And, and, and I guess it can significantly, I mean, you mentioned micropayments, for example, I guess you know, that infers significant reduction in the costs of moving money around. And I guess it's potentially borderless, isn't it, as well? Well, that's right. When was the last time you sent a cross-border email as just one example to build on yeah. that, that reference lesson? So no, no question. I think the opportunity at scale is to do what might be an otherwise domestic payments innovation across borders, right? And so we're seeing in the same way, for example, that I think, frankly, most, most if not all value-added money in circulation today somehow rides on private sector rails. Those rails, when they get big, like Visa, Network, MasterCard, yeah. um, ACH, SWIFT, any other international or global money transfer instrument, they end up becoming parts of that kind of common infrastructure, if you will. Yeah. So building digital currencies on public blockchains is really an innovation that allows for much more interoperability. The other analogy I use for this example is how useful would Gmail be if a Gmail user couldn't send an email to a Hotmail user? The fact that there's a protocol layer for transmitting information on the internet is really powerful. And the same is beginning to hold true in how we move money on public blockchains. Yeah, no, this is a fascinating topic. I mean, <clears throat> maybe more for our listeners, um, let's maybe talk about their potential uses in capital markets. Um, I mean, it looks like banks are already doing experiments with this. Uh, I mean, do, what, what uses do you see for stable coins? you know, for sort of lubricating capital markets? Yeah, well, it, it's it's funny because the, the bootstrap use case for digital currencies in circulation, and I should point out that Circle is the sole issuer of a USD coin or USDC, which is a dollar digital currency. And the bootstrap use case is in fact, software intermediated capital markets, most commonly referred to as decentralized finance or DeFi. Right. Um, and, and these are incredibly exacting customers and incredibly exacting, exacting operational requirements. So a stable coin introduces the opportunity for price discovery, instant settlement, low friction, high trust uh, intermediation and payments. Um, and so functionally, the dollar has become the currency of the internet and the initial use case is what I call software intermediated capital markets. Yeah. Beyond that, all these other examples, cross-border payments, commerce, remittances, and so on, are increasingly the emerging use cases for stable coins. And, and I guess there's a whole, um, from what I can tell from speaking with bankers and, and so on, that, that there's a whole part of this around settlement, trade and settlement. So, um, you know, you, you, you can do it instantly, which is, you know, really helps speed up the whole process. It frees up capital. Uh, for the investors and, 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 and counterparties and reduces risks. Um, I mean, do you see that sort of thing developing quite soon? 
Well, it's funny when I lived in your country, when I was in the UK, once upon a time, I, I was the managing director for Land Rover operations in 32 sub-Saharan African countries. And I joked that we were a counterparty bank that also managed vehicles and managed the vehicle supply chain. The reason being is that so much of the way the, the commercial trade operates is laden with friction, laden with completely opaque banking structures and the corresponding banking structure. So 90% of the risk in that company was, does the bank guarantee issued by a West African bank corresponding to Societe Generale in Paris have sufficient capital for me to put millions of dollars worth of vehicles on a ship? Now, the power of a public blockchain where both counterparties, even if they're anonymous to one another or pseudonymous to one another, have the same common ledger of information is an incredibly powerful um, instrument for making trade much more transparent for concepts around settlement finality, instant revenue recognition. So we're really optimistic that the next wave of this innovation will start to link more directly to commercial trade and commercial money flows yeah. um, because all of the same points uh, would exist there too, except the friction is enormous. It's an incredible drag coefficient on the global economy. No, uh, you're ab absolutely right. Um, I mean, do you have any thoughts? You mentioned um, that, you know, it'd be ridiculous having a Gmail account and not being able to send an email to, to a Hotmail account. So, you know, for, for email, there's been a sort of underlying protocols that have been designed. So a lot of different email email providers can operate. operate. Um, with blockchain, you have a situation where they're all kind of their own, their own ecosystems. Whether it be you know uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, Cardano, there's a whole list of them. Um, it's, do you think? I mean, I, I know people are working on this, but is there a way? Do you think for the sake for capital markets at least, where we can find a way of making all these things interoperable? So we don't really care whether what what blockchain it's running on. Um, it just happens seamlessly, like sending in or sending yeah. email. Yeah, well, well, Justin, in that question, you've literally asked, I think, one of the most important questions of this entire space, which is, what is the underlying technology stack? And so when you think about finance, payments, money, banking today, the existing standards typically ride on proprietary technology standards, right? So even very highly efficient companies and payment networks operate on a basis where the technology stack is proprietary and yep. therefore it, it implies that those companies have an enormous research and development budget. They have an enormous cybersecurity budget and enormous technology development and transformation budget. Yep. However, the failure, although rare in many cases, often means it's catastrophic and often means there are very few in the digital fire brigade analogy that could come and save it. Yeah. So the contrast is that public blockchain networks, each of the ones you mentioned and so many others that are effectively purpose designed blockchains, but public and open source in their in their technology approach, yeah. benefit from an open developer community, benefit from the concept of a thousand eyes watching the code, auditing the code, and with the ability to increasingly develop faster, better, cheaper ways of interacting with those networks. So the, the, the power of a constantly upgradable technology stack for moving money on the internet, eventually, I would argue right now we're in the dial-up phase, <laughs> eventually no, we'll enter the broadband phase. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, all the whirling sounds, you'd wait as the modem would connect. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and you know, one one other point is when was the last time you went to a technology or an internet conference where the topic on the stage was the hardware and software that made the internet work? The fact that we're still discussing blockchain and algorithms and the underlying technology that makes the tech that makes it work means that we're still in the very, very early days of what this innovation ultimately means. Yeah, no, that, that's certainly true. Okay, m maybe moving a little bit back to the sort of retail world again. Um, I mean, one thing I've noticed sort of going around the internet and so on, that in the world of decentralized finance or DeFi, it's possible to get very high returns on dollar stable coins, sometimes well beyond 4%. And that's much higher than you'd get in a traditional bank savings account. I mean, firstly, how is that possible? Uh, you know, who, who, who's borrowing this money at such high rates? And isn't, isn't this a form of, form of lending quite risky? Yeah, well, it, it, it is a it is a great question. And, you know, the the economist, I think only a few times has devoted a cover story to the emergence of blockchain and cryptocurrencies. And one of the more recent ones was, you know, a cover story devoted to decentralized finance. The breakthrough is pretty simple, actually, in, in its economic terms. And of course, like all any like any and all class of investments or lending, never lend out more than you're prepared to risk. Right. Mm -hmm or then you're prepared to lose. But the principle is pretty straightforward, that right now the demand for dollar-denominated borrowing in crypto capital markets um, is not being met by any other traditional instrument. And so, of course, the innovators never stand still, and they've come up with ways of, of safely, effectively meeting the demand for borrowing and lending denominated in stablecoins in these markets. The interesting thing though, and one of the methods in which the risk is being guarded, any kind of default risk, is that the tenor of these types of loans are not very long. Oftentimes because of the ability to have streaming payments with a, with a, with a digital currency and its programmability, the tenor of these loans are, are um, often pretty short and you're fulfilling a need for short-term capital. I think as that innovation continues to advance and continues to potentially address other longer, more traditional forms of lending, then you'd see some, some interesting concepts around lowering costs for things like mortgages, lowering yeah. you know, access, and then having a kind of a reverse auction based on demand and buying signals of what price point people are willing to accept for lending. I mean, do, do, do you have any ideas on who sort of, borrowing this capital i mean you know you've got you've got also you've got virtual real estate going on um in, in, on the internet it's this so-called metaverse um you've got non non-fungible tokens and I, I guess you then got blockchain developers i mean is, are those the kind of people who are borrowing money maybe to buy and sell things or to pay a pro a coder to to do something for them or is, is that is that what's going on well, and, and so much more, right? I think definitely the early adopters of all of this market have been the early adopters of cryptocurrencies and digital currencies themselves. And so in a 10-year span, um, whether you liked it or not, Bitcoin was the best and remains the best performing asset class in a 10-year span looking backwards. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of folks realize that if Bitcoin becomes a proxy for digital gold, then the stable coin in some ways is the digital thrift that makes all of the other commerce take place in these new capital markets and these new financial markets. But today, decentralized finance and what is known as centralized finance or CFI, yeah. there's also a new user in that camp, 
the effectively corporate treasurers. Um, if you think about companies putting Bitcoin on their balance sheets as an off-risk asset, the idea that corporate treasurers would then use idle cash as a way of generating some yield for short tenors as a part of their treasury management function, there's an increasing camp that are doing that. Um, Circle, for example, has offered an institutional crypto lending platform known as uh, Circle Yield that does exactly that capability for um, for corporate treasurers. Oh, it's crypto without the volatility, I guess, would be a short term. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. Okay, well, let's look a little bit at the sort of um, the, the, the regulatory side a bit more on that. So um, in your view, which regulators are best placed to oversee stablecoin issuers? Is it the prudential or securities regulators? Or as some have called for, should the US establish its own special crypto regulator to do this job? Um, and, 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 you know, the other thing, what do you think of stablecoin operators being regulated as banks? Yeah, well, well, each of those points, not only very timely, but um, obviously very deeply of interest to Circle. Yeah. Um, so on the, I think no question, if you look at the consensus around the world and you look at, you know, important jurisdictions that have taken a deep view of fintech innovation, then broadly, stablecoin innovations are falling into the e-money category. Okay the banking category, and therefore sort of at the ultimate in the extreme as they get bigger, and you think about a risk-adjusted way of, of um, doing no harm from yeah. a regulatory vantage point, but appropriately regulating risks, then ultimately this belongs in the prudential regulatory camp. Because the expectation from the end user is that a dollar goes into a digital currency like USDC, the expected price parity to that dollar through its life cycle as a digitally native instrument for medium for payments and mediums of exchange yeah. and through to redemption and cashing out, it's still a dollar. And so we're doing our level best as a company to not only set standards, but to conform with them in the US and around the world. Um, so I think that's the that's the likely home. Um, in fact, I, I can tell you the, the president's working group on financial markets has intimated as much in their recent recommendations where they basically say stablecoin issuers should be insured depository institutions. My one caveat there, however, is that our business model does not conduct any fractional reserve banking or lending, right? So for every USDC coin in circulation, the corresponding reserves are held in the care, custody, and control of the banking system and never fractionalized. So the risk profile, frankly, I think is slightly better than uh, what you would see in a traditional bank. So I guess you'll be calling for a proportionate uh, regulatory regime from the likes of the uh, FDIC, for example. Not yeah, and, and I'm, I'm a risk and insurance person, right? So and fundamentally, I think deposit insurance as a concept post the Great Depression is one of the more enduring public sector innovations we've ever had. I've even called for the concept of a cyber FDIC being created in the United States such that no single entity that suffers a cyber risk carries the weight on their own. Um, having said that, I absolutely agree that uh, stablecoin innovations that are fully reserved, where the reserves are inside the banking system, the very banking system ultimately these regulators oversee, should carry a, a different risk classification when they're not fractionalizing and they're not effectively lending out depositors money. There's also a view in which these are not deposits. Um, in the United States, for example, Circle lives in a regulatory regime comparable to companies like PayPal. And we have very clear money transmission regulations and electronic stored value regulations as well. Right. Okay. I mean, just um, 
just out of curiosity, I don't know if you have this number off the top of your head, but but how 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 long is the average holder of US dollar coin? How long do they hold it for on average? It's just just that question just occurred to yeah. me. Well, it, it's a, it's a great, it's a phenomenal question. And it, it's a three-year-old innovation that has grown from zero to 40 plus billion US dollars in reserves yeah. in the span of three years. So the experience of uh, clearly more people are are coming in more more companies ultimately because circle faces companies not the retail market but more companies are coming into this innovation rather than exiting it yeah. so we maintain a liquidity profile and a redemption profile that has the ability to effectively redeem at par at all times yeah. uh, besting you know recommendations like liquidity liquidity coverage ratios under basel 3 for example um, so the experience in a three-year run is the growth of the ecosystem and the growth of USDC in circulation. But I think one of the reasons people are staying into it is, and, and businesses principally are staying into it, is because there's no buyers and spenders remorse in terms of you know early cryptocurrency challenges that you saw. Yeah. Number two, it's increasingly becoming a medium of exchange that's bridging digital financial services with real-world use cases. Companies like Visa, for example, have enabled USDC settlement across um, 70 million merchants. Companies like MasterCard are not far behind. And then you see most recently MoneyGram has enabled, enabled remittances to be executed in USDC and then paid out in local currencies around MoneyGram locations around the world. Um, so you're starting to see that bridge where this becomes truly a global settlement network. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Okay, well, um, you mentioned the uh, President's Working Group on Financial Markets, or the PWG. Now, uh, as we, we discussed it uh, when, a while ago, they recently came out with a report outlining concerns about stablecoins, basically the wish list of powers the regulators would like Congress to give to them. Now, it could be argued that many of the concerns raised in that report, such as potential runs on stablecoins, could be addressed with a Federal Reserve issued digital dollar. Now, what's your view on that? Yeah. So, so well, the, the central bank digital currency as the remedy to big tech entry into payments and money, yeah. in my, in my view is, is a very bad public policy idea. And so I, I herald the temperament and the patience we have seen from our central bank in the United States and particularly from uh, chairman Powell, who has said the United States better get it right than get it fast. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other piece of the puzzle is obviously many countries and many central banks are observing the experience and the experiments taking place in China and wondering whether or not um, you know, they, they have to keep up with the proverbial digital currency Joneses. I argue the counterpoint, which is that if in fact there is a digital currency space race, the sum of free market activity taking place well within the regulatory perimeter of the United States, the UK and other and other countries where the dollar over this very short time horizon has become the currency of the internet. Um, under that basis, $140 billion reference the dollar as stable coins in circulation, yep. some to varying degrees of liquidity and prudential management, but that's a different discussion. Um, but the net experience of trillions of dollars of transactions safely processed on these public networks is a good paradigm for what the future of digital currency looks like. Um, so I'm I'm generally opposed to central bank digital currencies. I think they pose an enormous amount of risks 
they imply choosing technology winners and losers in the banking system. And maybe the last quick point I would make, Justin, is that you know you're in the financial upside down when both the banks and the fintechs agree with that position. So in recent hearings here in the U.S., on central bank digital currencies, the American Bankers Association and the Bank Policy Institute wrote long opposition letters outlining all the issues with a federal uh, government central bank digital currency. Okay, well, that, that leads to, uh, to, to the next question, really. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of conflicting noises coming out just out of the Fed itself. Um, it seems some members seem to lean towards it, others clearly don't. Um, so do you think the, the US will ever get around to issuing a central bank digital currency or CBDC at some point? Do you think that's going to happen? Well, I think I think the, the, the more likely outcome, um, and of course, said with the caveat that my crystal ball only predicts things that I can control. <laughs> but, no. So, you know, perhaps no, this is no, this is, point. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the, a more likely outcome in my view, and frankly, a more enduring business model would be to level the playing field for central bank custody for banks and non-banks, and then to consider the legal determination of what I classify as digital legal tender. Now, could a stable coin yeah. such as USDC that meets certain parameters of ubiquity, certain parameter parameters of price parity with its reference asset and where the care of the assets that underpin it are inside, for example, a central bank or the a well-regulated banking system, could that one day reach a standard of digital legal tender? Um, I think in that world, not only would the banks, the fintechs and the payments companies all have a common digital instrument in which you could have more efficient payments and trade, yeah. then the central bank would also keep the air gap between money, technology, and people's wallets. That I think is an important feature that protects privacy. It guards against de-risking or de-platforming, I should say. And then finally, it doesn't import to the taxpayer all of the technology are indeed taking place in these markets. Yeah, I mean, talking of data, I mean, one of the fears of the of CBDC is that the government will know everything about every individual, you know, what they do with their money, um, which, you know, that, that there is a sort of, it's kind of an anti-libertarian um, uh, argument there. Um, you know, they'll point to China and say, well, you know, they, they, they're using it as a form, potentially as a form of oppression. Now, what's happened in the internet is that all our data, rather than being controlled by the government, is now controlled by, you know, uh, uh, big tech companies. I mean, they, they know more about us than probably anybody. I just wonder, you know, whether there's a risk that, you know, issuers, stablecoin issuers could end up in the same way, um, basically, They'll get they'll get to see what everyone else is doing, um, mm. and use that data to monetize new business models. I mean, is there a risk of that happening, or you know, is there a commitment to basically keep people not to look at people's data? Yeah, well, it's a powerful question, and ultimately, the question is, you know, to the right of lawful, the use of money in all of its forms, whether it's a stable coin, or enshrined on a plastic card, or in physical specie should be as free as possible and as censorship resistant as possible. Therefore, the presumption of privacy with the use of money is an incredibly powerful feature in Western societies and not a bug. And that would hold true of, you know, what type of transaction reporting is required from banks and credit card companies and payments companies and so on. 
And so if you believe in a posture of same risk, same rules, activity-based technology neutral regulation, then a stablecoin innovation that can conform with financial integrity requirements, KYC requirements and other requirements ought to be able to operate pretty freely. What you're finding, however, is that the terms of art, the jargon, the technology all sound somewhat scary, right? And so I've been trying to gradually introduce a new lexicon around crypto, blockchain, <laughs> Byzantine fault tolerant algorithms to make it much more explainable. Some, for example, are likening these innovations to a third generation of the web. Yes. So if we were as a society entangled in three iterations of the web, the internet, the first was the, the enablement of people to read information. The second was enabling people to read and write. The third, which we're in the early innings of right now, is the ability for people to read, write, and own unique content on the internet. That's what's creating the so-called internet of value. But the presumption of privacy at each of these junctures is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And the same would have to hold true with money as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Well, let's um, sort of go back specifically to the uh, U US situation uh, on regulating crypto assets. Now, it's still pretty confusing. The agencies not really agreeing with each other. Um, however, you know, we've had a lot of uh, policy documents uh, come out of the US, such as the PWG report, which we were discussing earlier. Um, are there, in your view, are, are we sort of getting clues on the direction of US regulation now? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? How do you think they are likely to evolve? How, what, what might they look like in a few years' time? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think um, I've been party personally to the policy conversation since the summer of 2019, okay. um, personally, and and from the central banks to the prudential regulators to the financial integrity bodies like the Financial Action, Action Task Force and many others. Yeah. Collectively, they've been paying very close attention, but candidly, a lot of jurisdictions around the world have been waiting for the proverbial puff of white smoke to emerge from the United States. We, uh, last week, we had a hearing in the House Financial Services Committee, which was nonpartisan, almost patriotic in its um, in its approach and its camp conversation. That that hearing convened the CEOs of major operators in this industry. Yeah. Um, just today, for example, we have a hearing in the Senate uh, Banking Committee, uh, where I hope the same outcome uh, follows suit, which is ultimately a conversation of. In the United States, the states are the laboratories of fintech innovation. Uh, companies like ours are comprehensively licensed across the country. The question is, what is the federal outcome? I think for stablecoins, bank-like regulation is very likely. I think for digital currency, capital market activities, digital asset trading, and the rest, you could increasingly see both the CFTC and the SEC playing companion roles, which are important. But then over, over time, hopefully, this $3 trillion industry, and these are the stakes, will call a jurisdiction around the world home. And the more the U.S. provides for regulatory certainty, then the more it becomes a jurisdiction of choice. I mean, you, you clearly have your, your finger on the political pulse, um, you know, in, in, particularly in the U.S. Um, what is the, the views of, you know, senators and, and sort of, Congress, congressmen and women. I mean, what are they? Are they coming round to uh, to stable coins? Are they sort of beginning to maybe? Yeah. yeah. So, what's your what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think the calculus has changed. Right in in the technology world, there are these really fascinating charts that track 
how long does it take an emerging technology to reach a certain share of the population, right? And you know, things like the phone may have taken 100 years before they reached nearly 100 million people, for example, or the internal combustion engine and other innovations beforehand. What we're now seeing is that the entire crypto assets market, again, roughly a $3 trillion market, it may not be right for everyone, but everyone's right to participate in it is important, has now reached a tipping point in terms of the US population and the global population that are engaged with it. Globally, roughly 200 million people or more are engaged in some form of activity in this space. Domestically in the US, this is about 20 million people. And I think that number is only going to continue growing exponentially. Ironically, the asset, the, the crypto asset that has created the most user appeal and mass adoption is actually non-fungible tokens. Yeah. People originally dismissed them um, as, you know, why would somebody spend $69 million buying uh, a graphic, uh, a GIF, right? Um, yeah. people's, people's every day's piece of art. But nonetheless, that breakthrough of, you know, digital scarcity and digitally scarce art um, has really created a complete wave of user adoption and consumer adoption. Yeah, um, so, so I, I think I think we're at the tipping point, and where where the political calculus has changed. And candidly, a lot of U.S. states are are really forward leaning on being um, fintech friendly and crypto friendly. Yeah, no, that's 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 certainly very very noticeable. Okay, let's um let's sort of um, pivot and to look at some of the financial stability aspects. Now, the Bank for International Settlements said in its December quarter report that unlike banks, stablecoin issuers lack backstops such as deposit insurance, although that may, may change in the US, uh, and are inherently fragile. Is that a, is that a fair assessment of stablecoins? Well, I would argue to the BIS and others that first, the term of art is erroneous because you can't use the term stablecoins without really understanding the fundamental distinctions with each of the stablecoins that are in circulation. So any instrument that is claiming to be backed by safe assets and fails to demonstrate that it is in fact backed by those assets, clearly given its scale, could produce prudential risk and runs and other, other issues. Um, in our instance, in our case, our, our business model um, is a business model that I think from a prudential vantage point is as good, if not better than uh, what you would see from deposit taking banks and fractional reserve banks, because the, the reserves are strictly cash and strictly short duration treasuries, yeah. 90 days or less. And then the money is in the care, custody and control of U.S. regulated banks. So fundamentally, an indictment of our digital currency is an indictment of the very banking system that these prudential regulators oversee. As Circle continues its journey of becoming a bank, then we think we will help co-create the examination manual and co-create the prudential standards for what these look like when they get big. Now, a cross-border challenge, uh, a global challenge may emerge with, you know, stable coins getting very, very large, yeah. but, you know, a world that prepared itself for only a bipolar universe of fintech that was either Chinese government-backed innovations or American big tech innovations miss the middle. And in the middle, a lot of companies are building e-money-like structures, are conforming with existing rules for electronic money, conforming, if not exceeding, standards around prudential risk. And I think that's where we have to be careful not to be too heavy-handed around what recommendations and what policies we're, we're um, proposing. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it's 
what it boils down to is, a, is probably a lot of transparency um, and, and, and the fact that, that there are ways of checking that, that each um, stablecoin dollar is properly reserved and everyone can see that. Um, you know, we may, may have to go through a few bouts of volatility to prove that it, it, it is indeed robust. Um, okay. Um, now, just uh, just moving further on to those sort of uh, financial stability aspects, um, according to various reports, stablecoins are mainly used for, you know, by investors moving in and out of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. Uh, as we know, you know, the cryptocurrencies are extremely volatile. And I just wonder, therefore, could we see, you know, big sudden moves in and out of stablecoins, uh, particularly, you know, as they grow in capitalization? I just wondered that could eventually translate into volatility in U.S. cash instruments and short-term treasury markets as people go in and out of various cryptocurrencies. Uh, and therefore, yeah, it, there were some issues there. It's it's a good question, and I think again for for some stable coins, I think some of the prudential concerns, and candidly, one of the potential authorities the president's working group on financial markets are recommending, is that the Financial Stability Oversight Council consider designation. It would be the kind of monetary and financial equivalent of carrying the scarlet letter, to be designated as systemically important. Um, you know, financial market activity or financial infrastructure. Yeah. The difficulty goes back to this question of not all stable coins are created equal and not all stable coins are on the margin of being well regulated. Um, so, so I do think we have to be careful broadly about, you know, killing innovation and about, you know, overstating potential forms of systemic risk. I also think the, the argument that stable coins or digital currencies are somehow challenging underlying fiat currencies especially when they are literally digital twins of those underlying reference assets. Well, absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, we import the monetary policy of the Fed. We, as a company, do not have a money creation authority. We do not have a monetary policy, for example. So demand and for USDC in either direction, supply or withdrawal of USDC is a function of market demand. Yeah. Um, and so we keep a liquidity process and a treasury management process that can make those redemptions happen uh, as on demand, basically. Yeah. No. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think some of the some of the fears that are being um, expressed from international bodies presumed a world in which only one or two global dominant players would exist, but miss the middle. The middle is where all the innovation is taking place. Um, and, and so, I think that's that's an important part of this overall conversation. Right. Okay. Now, uh, another another thing. Um, the BIS says stablecoins lack the no questions asked status of sort of actual money. Uh, basically, they are collateralized. Is is that something that can ever be addressed to make them as good as money on your view, or is it even necessary, given maybe how they are used? Well, and this gets to this gets to a fundamental premise of money. I mean, money is definitely and unequivocally a sovereign activity, right? But money and the use of money and the trust in money is a sociological experiment. I mean, one of the powerful distinctions in our species versus other complex species on the planet is the ability to ascribe our collective belief systems into institutions and concepts. Democracy, a conceptual framework. Money and trust in money, similarly a conceptual framework. If enough people think there's going to be a run on a bank, surprise, surprise, there's a run on a bank, irrespective of how well guarded and well capitalized that bank may be. 
And so this idea that money can also exist in digital form and in tokenized form, back to my point about the demographics of the cryptocurrency movement, um, 200 million people around the world and counting have fundamental belief that they could live in a technology we trust form of money and value exchange. The reason that's the case is born from the detritus of the 2008 financial crisis. When all other systems failed, people realized that there was a bit of a house of cards propping up um, the financial system. And we had to dislocate trillions of dollars, privatizing gain and socializing losses in 2008. And so the innovations we've been discussing on this show today are in some ways born from fundamental mistrust of the banking system. And so the digital currency revolution is a protest vote against many features there. And people have called for much more transparency, much more access, much more empowerment and democratization of their assets. I asked the rhetorical question, is it really your money if you have to ask someone to spend it and pay someone to hold it for you? Digital currencies are putting that power in people's hands. Well, yeah, it, it is supposed to be a, a, a democratization uh, uh, movement or process. Okay, uh, maybe for our sort of last uh, last topic or, or question. Um, I mean, I, I could see you know maybe maybe many years down or several years down the road, could see well regulated, trusted stable coins becoming favoured by corporate treasurers. You know, for instance, because they don't benefit from uh, depositor insurance protection. But this raises a very similar concern that people have with CBDCs, which is they could end up disintermediating banks or at least undermine the traditional deposit-based funding models. Is there a risk that stablecoins could end up undermining the robustness of banks if they became widely adopted? And I'm thinking, for instance, you know, if we have another you know, 2008 scenario where the banking system's under a lot of stress for whatever reason? That's a great question. So one of the ironies, and you know, I haven't yet written it, but I've been collecting over the years kind of a myth-busting series <laughs> of topics and articles. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the ironies, one of the ironies of the entire cryptocurrency and blockchain finance discussion is this, co this concept that it is going to disintermediate banks, it's going to disintermediate credit card companies, and ultimately disintermediate the central banks themselves. The irony is the waiting list of traditional financial services firms, banks, custodians, credit card companies, and others that have used this infrastructure as a part of empowering faster, better, cheaper ways of executing payments in their business models yeah. um, tells a complete counter narrative to the argument that the whole space is being disruptive. Um, for example, the U Circle and USDC reserve custody has created a cottage industry of reserve management and custodianship of, of the assets backing USDC in circulation, 40 plus billion today. Yeah. We've even announced recently a program to share a, por a portion of those reserves to community banks and minority depository institutions across the country, okay. paying homage at once to the distributed nature of the industry but also strengthening the balance sheets of many banks across the country that, that would otherwise be left out of the future of fintech. Uh, the same holds true, as I'd mentioned before, of major credit card companies enabling digital currency settlement and joining this multi-trillion dollar asset. Um, and so I, I think the, the, the inverse is, is what's happening. The, the narrative that a new technology would disintermediate everything, again, borrows a little bit from the experience of the internet and how the internet basically and software ate up the entire planet, I think 
blockchain is a very distinct technological revolution. Yeah. I consider blockchain much more of an augmenting technology than a disruptive technology, but nonetheless, it's a foundational one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. Well, I, I think that that neatly uh, concludes our, our, our discussion. So Dante, thank you. Um, thank you very much. And to conclude, I'd like to thank Dante for sharing his views about stablecoins in this global risk regulator podcast. And if you'd like to listen to more regulatory podcasts, please visit www.globalriskregulator.com. And you can also subscribe via ACAST, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And finally, I'd like to wish everyone listening to stay safe and well and the season's greetings. Thank you. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 